We've been looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23, and in this text, uh, in this text, Jesus has been revealing and talking about the condition of our hearts, because we remember the situation, he has all of these uh, religious people, these Pharisees, these preachers and teachers, these experts in God's law, these experts in the words of Moses, and They've got all of their sort of finery out. They even have good deeds out front. They've done all these great things. They're the upstanding moral, you know, agents of society. And yet Jesus looks at them and he says, there's something lacking in you. And the thing that's lacking in you is not the things on the outside, but rather the things of the heart. And so Jesus concludes in um, Mark chapter 7. This is verses 22 and 23. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things, they they begin in the heart. They take their root like a seed in the heart. And, And as we allow them to grow, as we allow them to expand, as we allow them to take more and more of our thinking and of our desires over, it is by nature that eventually then we will let that take place in action. So certainly one doesn't start out with cheating on their wife. They start out by allowing the, 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 the relationship to go to pieces. They allow new thoughts into their mind, desires for other people. This begins to grow and grow and grow until it finally takes root and the action of adultery happens. Same thing with murder and theft and all of, all of the rest. And so what Jesus is getting us to try to, to try to realize is that what God is looking at then is not just your outward appearance. He's not even looking just at the things that you do. He's looking at what's in your mind. See, we judge by outward appearances because that's all we can see. But God, who can judge the will, God who can judge the thoughts, God who can judge every intention of our heart is looking upon that. And he's asking the question there, what is in your heart? Because what is in your heart will eventually produce action. <clears throat> now, obviously, there's a lot of things we can agree about here in terms of things that are, that are wrong, things you ought not to do. A lot of things, obviously, that we still harbor in our, in our thoughts, even if we don't act upon them. But there's one thing here that doesn't fit. One thing here that doesn't fit. And, you know, we all agree with this stuff. Ah, adultery, covenant, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, even envy. But slander... Slander is one that doesn't quite fit. And most of your Bibles, if you're using a modern version, not like the King James Version. Does anybody use the King James in here, by the way? No? Okay. Well, anyway. Um, most of them translate it slander, but the word there is, uh, in Greek is blasphemia. Does that sound familiar? Blasphemy, right? I mean, it's just the stock word for blasphemy. And I assume that the reason that modern translators use the word slander is because blasphemy is kind of an odd word. It's outdated. We don't talk about blasphemy anymore. It, it doesn't, it, it's not, in fact, Laura and I were sitting there, we were talking, I was talking to her about this, and I asked her, like, when was the last time you heard a sermon or a lesson or a teaching or had a discussion about blasphemy? And together, and bless her heart, she hears a lot of sermons just Feel bad for her for a moment. Just let it sit. She listens to a lot of sermons because of me. But, you know, we listen to a lot of sermons, and, and I can't remember the last time I heard anyone warn me about blasphemy. I couldn't remember the last time anybody even, even brought it up or talked about it. 
And so they use this word because, you know, it makes sense in the modern world. We realize that you ought not say things about people that are evil or untrue. If we said, listen, Jack doesn't brush his teeth, like that's not nice. But that would in fact be slander because I'm sure he does. No, he doesn't. So it's true. Lisa brushes her teeth, so it would be slander of her. But this isn't what, what, what Jesus is getting at. He's not talking about the way we speak about people. He's talking about the way we speak about God. He's talking about how do you speak about God? Because anytime we speak about God in a flippant way, anytime we speak about God or his word in a way of saying, well, that isn't right, or I can't believe God said that, or I can't believe God did that, anytime we use something that is holy in a profane way, we are moving into the realm of blasphemy. Now, immediately we run into the problem, though, don't we? And this, this to me, is, is, is evidence that even those of us who are Christians and maybe have been Christians for a long time maybe don't have a biblical worldview. Like, we don't actually see the world the way the Scriptures are teaching us because I look at this list and I say, man, theft is bad, murder is bad, adultery is bad. You know, even, like, coveting, like, wanting something somebody else has, that's bad. But slander, like, blasphemy, saying, uh, you know, using God's name in vain, like, how could that possibly ever be on par with committing murder. Like these, it doesn't belong. It doesn't fit in our modern way of thinking. And I think this reveals to us that maybe some of us don't really, maybe even including me, don't really hold biblical values, don't really hold a biblical worldview. I was listening to uh, uh, an interview on NPR not too long ago, a few weeks, maybe a month at most, and it was a, a, a comedian who worked for John Stewart, that you know paragon of virtue to the millennial generation, um, on the Daily Show, and uh, he was raised Muslim, and they were going to do a skit where they would have somebody dressed up like Muhammad. And if you are familiar with Islam at all, you know that that's considered blasphemy. It, it, it's, it's tantamount to making a graven image, which is why, like, if you ever see old Islamic artwork, if you can find Islamic artwork, uh, it's like the face is removed. There's no face on it, right? And so, so they were talking about doing this skit, and this guy stands up and he says, listen, this is, this is going to offend my entire family. It's going to offend everybody I know. Like, we, we can't do this. This is considered blasphemy, and it's offensive. And normally I would be okay with that because I'm like, I don't want to offend like a billion Muslims in the world. That has no interest in me whatsoever. But I became irate because I've seen enough clips from my friends who have posted it on Facebook or emailed it to me or whatever of Jon Stewart to have seen him commit blasphemy against God, against Jesus, against the church time and time again. But what's the difference? What's the difference? The difference is you would have Muslims throwing rocks Right at their, their studio. You would have angry letters. You would have people turning off the TV. You would have, you'd have commercial people who put in commercials pulling their commercials because of that. Because people who are Muslim would be outraged. But as they commit blasphemy against God, against Jesus, against the church, what do they hear from us? Nothing, right? And I think it goes deeper than this because, I, you know, I, I see, I see your, your posts, your tweets, all these things, and I see Christians, uh, you know, throwing out OMG. I see Christians uh, saying God's name in vain. I see Christians using Jesus' name and images in ways that, that aren't good or fair or right. I see us treating the Son of God with flippancy. And if we're willing to do it, of course the world is willing to do it as well. In fact, this is the very root of comedy these days. Blasphemy is not a sin. It doesn't fit. No, it's comedy. It's what we laugh about. It's what we interject in our conversations. Jesus says, though, here, he says, 
Out of the heart comes blasphemy, which tells us something important, I think, about the content of our hearts. If we are able to, willing to, use any divine name or any divine thing with a flippant attitude, if we're able to sit and listen to somebody do that with a flippant attitude, perhaps it reveals to us really the state of God in our lives. Because if somebody speaks ill of Laura or uses her in a flippant matter, I will stop them, right? You don't talk about my In fact, Emery, I say to her, you don't talk to my wife like that. And she's just a pretty girl. I mean, not just a pretty girl, but I mean, she, right, not the equivalent of God, not equivalent of my Savior. And so what I, what I think that Jesus is getting at here is he's saying, blasphemy doesn't begin when you start saying, like, cuss words about God. Blasphemy begins when we allow God to stop being the pinnacle of all things in our hearts. And when that happens, when it begins in the heart, in the mind, in the will, then it begins to trickle into our lives, and we're able to just sort of not be bothered by those things. Now, this is the question that I set before you this morning. Is God the seat of all reverence, all honor, all love, and all devotion? Because if the answer to that in your life is truly yes, then how you speak about him and how you let others speak about him in front of you matters. This is written into the law. You remember the Old Testament, right? Right? The Ten Commandments, the first commandment is... It's not a rhetorical question. I'm actually asking you. First commandment is, you don't have to be verbatim. Just get there. No other gods before me, right? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second is an extension of that, which is... No. Good try, though. Make no graven images. I think I heard... I'm hoping I heard somebody say that. It's kind of like a little... Russell in the room, but make no graven images. And then the third one is the extension beyond that, which is don't take the Lord's name in vain, right? Eventually, I mean, you, you, we knew we had to get there. You've been to Sunday school enough to know this, right? Eventually, we get to that. And, and isn't it interesting that of all this list that Jesus gave us, like all of this stuff presupposes those three commandments. Like, the Ten Commandments don't get to covenant, they don't, don't get to murder, they don't get to adultery, they don't get all that other things that happen in our lives until first it establishes something very important. First it establishes there is only one God. Secondly, you can make nothing or put nothing or have nothing that even grows near or sets near where he is in your life. And thirdly, you treat every single thing around him, including his name, with such reverence and awe that you wouldn't even speak it in a way that is unbecoming, right? Everything else flows out of this. And this is something that we have to like, write back into our hearts because I think it's been written out of us because we've all grown up and we see this, I, you know, I go to Emory School and I'm, I'm really thankful um, that they have these signs up that's like, you know, like respect others and, and love others and, and other such things like that. And it's good. We should, we should want our kids to do that, right? But unless we tell them why they should do that, when it's convenient, they will do that, right? And so, and so we have to begin by understanding that everything proceeds from our understanding of God, if I don't know how to be faithful to God, I cannot, according to the Ten Commandments, know how to be faithful to my wife. 
If I don't know how to keep God in such a high esteem and place that I would never make any kind of graven image, I would never let anything sit in the place where only God uh, belongs in my life, how could I ever keep from coveting my neighbor's house or car or spouse? If I do not honor God, how can I honor my father and mother? And so everything emanates from these first three commandments. Now, I have to take a little excursus here because this doesn't mean that there aren't atheists or people of other religions out there who are, are, are good people. I mean, there are great, very nice and well-meaning atheists out there who are doing nice and well-meaning things. The problem is they have no warrant for those things. For instance, going back to our list before, we might all agree that adultery, and we'll extend that to rape, is a bad thing. Yes? Terrible thing. Everyone, I think, in, hopefully in the Western world says, yes, that's a terrible thing. And yet we see that very thing going on in the Middle East right now with ISIS. And they say, well, listen, there, there's, there are these people who are being, you know, it's a horrible thing that they're doing, but it's a very effective thing, isn't it? If you want somebody that, to come over to your country and to be willing to cut off other people's heads, you need a certain kind of person, don't you? You need a certain kind of person. The kind of person who would hear you get, you get a wife or two if you kill these people. That's the kind of person you need. And, and so we hear atheists say, well, that's a terrible thing. We should do something about it. But it's written in the Quran. It's in Surah chapter 30. It's in Surah chapter 20. It's in Surah chapter 70. Written inside their law. Well, it's a terrible thing. Why is it a terrible thing? That's the question, right? I mean, we're all, we're all ready to accept the latter half of the Ten Commandments, but the question of those latter half of the Ten Commandments is, why is it wrong? Because it's very effective in doing what ISIS wants it to do. It's not wrong to them. It's, 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 it's encouraging their human flourishing, which is why Dawkins is so awesome, because he admits it, right? Love that guy. Now, everything proceeds from a ground of saying there is a reason why these things are wrong. And it has to begin with us understanding and accepting that there is one God and he has said you make nothing else that comes near me and you honor me completely. And because of that, murder is wrong, theft is wrong, rape is wrong, adultery is wrong, coveting is wrong. All of these other things are wrong. But they begin with understanding who God is. They begin with an understanding that God said. Which brings us back to the question of how could blasphemy be included in a list like murder and theft and all of that. But what's the importance of a name? Names are really, really important, aren't they? I mean, names are the way that we invoke somebody's, somebody's attention. Names are, are, are ways that we encourage intimacy and how we proclaim intimacy. So I, my clo- one of my closest friends right now, I talk to him literally every single day. I've never met him before in my entire life. I get a Facebook message from him. It says, I'm a roommate of your friend Adam, who is the best man in my wedding. We're really tight. I'm coming down to Tennessee. Can we meet? Maybe you could show me around because I'm going to go to seminary then. Like, oh, Adam, well, of course then. He ends up staying in my house, and now we're, we're really tight, right? But he names dro- name drops Adam in order to get that access, right? Because names matter. Names evoke attention. Names evoke intimacy. If I say, hey, you, hopefully the whole room looks up. Lloyd did, so it works. If I say, hey, mom, I might get a few more, even though it's not a little kid voice. If I say, hey, Laura, if I get this Laura, but... And the other Laura normally, but she's doing something foolish, like running 26 miles in Detroit right now. 
We've got this, like, inundation of these crazy runners lately. Paul last week, and then Laura and Alan this week. So I get some Laura's, but if I haste, chunky face. If I say chunky face, that's you. Which isn't an insult, by the way. It's an endearing term. Ask her about it later. She'll tell you. Like, we know names, and names evoke intimacy. And if you remember, in the scriptures, names were very important to Moses. Moses says, but God, we don't even know your name. And God says, I am. You should tell them, I am has sent you. And we think about the importance in the New Testament. When Peter is wrapping up this important sermon, he's giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time since the giving of the Holy Spirit. And he's wrapping this sermon up, and he says, the words of the prophets have been fulfilled because of this. In verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 21, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When he's facing the Sanhedrin, uh, this, this group of Jews, and this, it's the same story arc. Um, he's facing this group of Jews, and they're, they're questioning him about this. And he says, listen, there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. It is through the name of Jesus. Now, is it because the name itself holds intrinsic value? No, the name is just a name. But the name attaches to the being so that the two become one, so that by invoking the name, I, in fact, invoking the one. So the name is holy. Speaking the name of Jesus, speaking the name of God, this is a key and important role in our salvation, in our repentance, in our prayer life. How many of you end your prayers with, in the name of Jesus? We all do this. And this struck me because I became fearful that I use that in a flippant manner. Like, I use it like it's punctuation. Like, okay, everybody, it's time to end the prayer. And that's, that's how I use it. But that's not what we're supposed to be using it for. In John 14, 14, Jesus says, Everything you ask in my name, I will do. You are using the name of Jesus. You are speaking to God and you are invoking the name Above all names, you are invoking the King of kings, you're invoking the Lord of lords, you're invoking the name of the Son of God, you're invoking the mediator between God and man, and you're saying, God, hear my prayer, because I am one with Christ. And he says, okay. And if we treat in our prayers anything less than that kind of intensity, awe, and reverence, we have tread close to blasphemy. And it got me wondering as well, because I meet Christians a lot, and and, you know, we converse together, and I often hear that people feel like their prayer life is lacking power. I'm not sure that God answers my prayers sometimes I hear. And it got me thinking, I wonder if maybe the reason the church seems to be lacking that kind of power as they pray is because we aren't really invoking in our heart, as Jesus said, in our mind, in our will, with intentionality, with mindfulness, with knowledge, I am invoking the name of the Son of God over this prayer, and God will hear and answer. Do you mean it when you pray it? Now, why have we forgotten all of this? How could this have become something that we've forgotten? And I I think part of it is because from the time my clock radio kicks on until the time I fall asleep in front of the TV, we have been just bombarded with language, haven't we? You're going down the road, you're listening to the radio, you have conversations at work, you're standing in the elevator, you're listening to the radio, you're watching the news, you're reading the news, you're reading blog posts. I mean, all around us, we're just filled with words. And as we use words, words lose their power, don't they? And so people used to cuss, like, 
And you would be shocked because they saved it for those, like, one instance where it's like, man, this is serious business. He just dropped the F-bomb, right? There it is. But now it's just the way we talk. And so it doesn't hold any shock to us. It's not like a surprising thing. Oh, well, you've heard that like 15 times today, so no big deal. Same thing is true with blasphemy. If somebody speaks the name of God in a way that is unfitting, well, I mean, that was like the third time I heard it. And so we become desensitized because of the amount of language and how often we hear that kind of language. It doesn't phase us anymore, which, you know, it, it is what it is. But I would want to point out what Jesus says here. And that's that we'll be judged according to our words. Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, he says, The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. And here he's speaking about the inner man, right? We're bringing, we've got treasure in here. If it's good treasure, you bring forth good. If it's bad treasure, you bring forth bad. And so from here is coming this treasure. And he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, People will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. This is very similar to what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7. And here, he reveals this this important thing. You're going to give an account for every careless word you speak. Which I think on one hand should just cause us to stop and and be more careful about the things we say. We'll be careful. How'd that song go? We'll be careful little tongue, or is it lips, or mouth? ears. Isn't there a mouth one? I don't know. It's been, isn't mouth? Be careful, little mouth, what you say. Yeah, that's right. Ben's like shaking his head, no, you're messing with me. Don't do that. (laughs) Right? I mean, be careful what we say because we're judged by it. And if we're judged by careless words, like if we're, if we're judged by like, you know, words we toss out and you know, we don't really think much about it. Maybe we regret it. Maybe we don't. But it's just careless words. If we're judged by careless words, how much more will we be judged by how we use holy words? How much will we be judged by how we use the name of God? By how we use scripture? By how we speak about God's people, his beloved? How we speak to our brothers and sisters in Christ in conversation or in quarrels? It seems to me that this is why the scriptures say, let your yes be yes. And your no, no. Why? Do you remember the rest? Because everything else comes from the evil one. Anything that is outside the simplicity of speech comes from the evil one. And this is why we're told to be slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to become angry. And why Solomon in his wisdom says in Ecclesiastes 5, 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. When their words are many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. So I encourage you at some point today to take a few moments and to think deep and long about the words that you've said. Think deep and long about the kinds of ways that you speak and what you allow in your mind and in your home, in your car. This brings us to some application. How do we apply this text? And what are we supposed to maybe do or not do, as the case may be? Um, And here I'll give you four things. Four things. The first is is cursing. This is not something we we really do uh, very often. People don't intentionally curse um, with the idea that it will actually happen. But, you know, we, we do offhandedly abuse God's name quite a bit. 
And we hear that quite a bit. In Leviticus 24, somebody who abused the name of God was to be taken out and to be stoned to death. Now this seems extreme to us, but that's because we don't have a biblical worldview. It's because we don't see God's name as we see God high and above all. And now I'm not saying you should go out and throw a stone at somebody who says or takes God's name in vain. But perhaps you ought to warn them of the danger that they're putting themselves in. Right? I mean, this is big stuff. Big stuff, Ten Commandments stuff. Big. Like condemnation, like heaven and hell stuff. And we don't even really talk or think or care about it anymore. And so cursing is something that should never be on the lips of Christians, obviously. Never be near us as much as possible. Treat God's name the way you would treat God himself. Secondly, oaths. And this is something we see again and again. Oaths or swearing, we kind of either way. Um, but not swearing in the sense of saying foul language. Swearing in the sense of really swearing. Uh, that this yes and yes and no and no thing is, is the way that the Christian should speak. That we should uh, set ourselves apart from, from oaths and pledges and promises and these kinds of things. In fact, James says in James chapter 5 verse 12, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or, under, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? So that you do not fall under condemnation. All right, confession time. This morning it is, I don't know, 6.15, so like it, the, the awful hour. Um, and everything before nine is the awful hour, right? The awful hour. So this is the awful hour, and I'm getting up, and, and uh, there's a rabbit in the backyard, and the cat wants the rabbit really, really bad. And so she is like on me, like, like under my feet. I'm trying to walk, you know, it's like the groggy walk. It's the, it's the awful hour walk. And I'm trying to get, you know, toward the bathroom and the cat's like, and I'm stepping on her. She's like, and you know, like running around and like, it just will not, pawing at the door while I'm in the shower. And I'm like, it's okay at first. It's just a cat. But after about a half an hour of this, I'm starting to get mad, like literally mad at this cat. And I was about to say, I swear to God, I'm going to kick you if you don't stop it to the cat. And then I thought, no, you're preaching this morning. <laughs> not supposed to make O's. Because we say this, like it's just part of our common parlance, right? We just say, well, I swear to God, I'll do this or do that. Not ever thinking God's going to say on judgment day, well, you swore you'd kick the cat. Did you kick the cat? I don't think that God wants me to kick the cat, by the way. The point is that God doesn't want us to swear. And that when we do, we're actually invoking something real. You're saying, I pledge to do this. Your words matter. We live in a day and age where words don't seem to matter right? because you have anonymity on Facebook or blog posts or there's so much language coming at us all the time. But words matter. By your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. Be careful what you say. So don't go around making pledges or swearing or oaths or things like that. With flippancy. The third thing... Um, Lying or impure speech. Now, this is not blasphemy as we're talking about it proper. But I began to think about how I live my life and who I am. Because I have voluntarily attached my name to God. I call myself a Christian, right, publicly, and, and I think probably most of you do as well. Which means that when somebody sees me, what do they see? Christ. And so when I am caught in something, in some kind of lie or impure speech or something that comes out of my mouth which is unbecoming and unholy and unwholesome, what do people see? They see 
God speaking that way. And we see this all the time, right? When the actions of somebody reflect upon somebody else. This is why parents are always so nervous when they have their kids in church and they start screaming or crying or throwing a fit because you're thinking, oh man, I'm a terrible parent, right? <laughs> you're thinking, I'm a terrible parent, but you're not because all kids are awful and they just all do that, right? I mean, it's, it's all, we all know that, but you're, you think, oh, they're reflecting terribly on me because that's how we see things. So if people see me talking this way, they see Jesus talking this way, and I want to preserve the name of Jesus. I don't want to go anything near something that would allow someone to profane the name of Christ. And so I am going to stay as far away as I can from things like lying and pure speech, that sort of thing. Finally, silence. And this I take from Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1. You can sketch that down if you're taking notes. Leviticus 5, verse 1 says, If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Now this is legal code for Israel. It says that if in Israel you either see a crime committed or you find out later that that crime has been committed, you do not wait for crime stop to, to put out a $5,000 reward before you call in. No, you immediately make it known. And if you don't make it known, you commit crime. God will see that as sin and he will hold you accountable to it. And this is important, I think, in the church because we have seen an explosion um, over the past 10-ish years of these like sexual abuse scandals coming out, a lot of with the Catholic Church, but a lot of regular uh, Protestant churches as well, where people have been silent when they knew something awful was happening. That is tantamount to blasphemy because in the same way of number three, God, the, the people see God through us and much more so with silence. If we keep silent, we know evil is happening. We know a crime is being committed. How much more will they look at the church and say, oh, I don't want anything to do with that kind of God. Whatever they're worshiping, I don't want a part of it, right? And so our silence is just as dangerous as our speech. We have to be careful in what we say. We have to be careful in what we don't speak up because we are called to speak up. We are called to love justice. We are called to do what's right. And God holds us accountable if we stay silent. I think that's an important thing for us to say in the church today. Another aspect of that silence is where is your zeal for the name of the Lord? There's this scene in all of the Gospels where Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. You remember this story. He goes and he sees them buying and selling and, and, and he makes a cord of, of uh, he takes cords and he makes a whip and he uses it to r- drive out the livestock that they're going to sacrifice. He's flipping over tables and, and, and he shouts at them, you have made my father's house a den or, of thieves or a house of, mar- of marketing. Like the, you're, you're, you're buying and you're selling and you're, and you're using it to make money on worshipers. And the disciples, as they're watching Jesus outburst, probably with horror because they think the temple guard's going to come in and kill them all. Uh, But as they're watching this, probably afterward as they're thinking and ruminating about the thing, they remember Psalm chapter 69, which says, For the zeal of your house has consumed me, and reproach, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. What Jesus then is saying and what David is saying before him is that those who have maligned 
God's name, those who have spoken ill of God, those who have offended God, those who have wounded or hurt God, all of that stuff has now fallen on top of them. The offense to God is the offense to David. The offense to God is the offense to Jesus. And there is zeal in his heart for the name of God to the extent of which he is inflamed and furious that someone would so abuse the name of God. And that's the test, I think. Because I, I, I'm sure, I'm relatively sure that most of you are not running around just willy-nilly using the Lord's name in vain. But one of the things I do think that we have become desensitized to is those who do that in front of us. That our hearts become, have become callous to that. And the zeal for the name of the God is not built into us. We don't share the horror when somebody drags his name through the mud. We don't stand up and say, you know, like, listen, don't, don't take the Lord's name in vain in, in front of me. We don't say those kinds of things. And I confess that I have, I think, become desensitized to this. As I was reading the scripture from Mark 7 in English, uh, slander came up, you know, because it was there. And, and I, you know, thought to myself, well, I don't, I'm actually really careful about slander. So when I quoted earlier from the Quran, I, I looked it up, like made sure it was in there. I'm very careful about, you know, not slandering or saying anything unfair about anyone else. But I began to wonder, how do I use the name of God? Uh, do I use it flippantly? Do I use it um, without due reverence? Do I use it casually? Am I bothered when people speak ill of God or his people around me? In Leviticus chapter 22, I don't have it underlined, double check here. Uh, verses 31 through 33 say this. You shall keep my commandments and do them, for I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel, for I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so he says here, you are to keep the commandment. The name of God should not be profaned in your midst uh, because in your midst I should, my name should be kept holy and I am also the one who keeps you holy, that there is a, a sort of a reciprocity of holiness, of sacredness that is happening between God's people and God himself to where we are holding tight to the name of Jesus, to the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we're making it holy and awesome in our midst, even as God is using his own presence to sanctify and make us holy. That's the importance of the name of let me put it to you maybe this way as an illustration. Imagine you are in a burning building and you are stuck under a beam that has fallen and I mean the place is burning down. You are quite literally about to become toast. And somebody breaks through those doors to rescue you and they pull up the beam and they get you out and they let you, you, you come running out of that fiery building but that person does not come after you. And the building comes down. And their life is taken away. Sacrifice your li their life for yours that you might live. And standing outside as you're being taken care of by these firefighters and paramedics, somebody says, well, they weren't really that great a firefighter anyway. Well, you know, I mean, I don't really like the guy that much. What would you say? I bet you would be all teeth and nails, wouldn't you? 
Because your life has been saved by that one. And their name has now become the name of your Savior. Their name has now become holy to you. It is sacred to you. That person is on a pedestal to you for the rest of their life. And if we could think of that for somebody who would save just this mortal coil, how much more should we preserve the name of the one who not only bought us in this life, but has preserved and saved us for the life to come? How holy should the name of God be in our presence and in our mouths? How sanctified should our speech and lives be in light of all that God has done for you? So as you speak his name, do so only a little. And as you use his name, make sure it is in reverence and in awe that the name of the Lord may be sanctified among his people that he might sanctify his people. Amen? Let's stand as we sing.